Courage, above all things, is the first quality of a warrior. Carl von Clausewitz You want to fight? We'll give you a fight. Welcome to FightCast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to FightCast. Uh, my name is David. Thank you so much for joining me on the very first episode of this new series I'm embarking on. First ever podcast. Uh, new, unfamiliar territory for me, but uh, hey, um, got a couple reasons I want to do this. So I'm going to go ahead and do it. And uh, that's all I'm going to say about it. Anyway, uh, this podcast is all going to be about armed conflict. Um armed conflict between human beings throughout history in both fact and fiction. And um, I want to talk about both fact and fiction in this podcast in equal measure, hopefully. Um, I'm coming at this both as a martial artist and as an actor, as well as just a general history geek, um, amateur military historian, um, amateur, amateur, I don't even know if amateur is you know too generous of a term. Um, but the... The fact of armed conflict has always been of great interest to me, and uh, I decided that I'm going to start a podcast and do this as either a just a publicly shared platform to geek out about things on, which, uh, I mean, who doesn't want one of those, um, but also trying to fill a gap uh, that I don't think is going on uh, local to the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and Minnesota, the frozen north, um, and we have some great stage combat here, and as an actor... That's one of the things that I want to be talking about on this podcast is uh, stories being told through combat in fiction. Um, I'm going to try to clearly mark each episode um, which – what kind of topic I'm talking about, um, whether I'm talking about fiction or whether I'm talking about fact or whether I guess in an episode like this one to try to find the fact somewhere in the fiction. I hope all of that made sense to you as I hope to make it apparent later on. Anyway, um, some episodes are going to be movie review episodes, kind of like this one. And um, the last time I tried to record this, I uh, ran into a bit of a block of getting into the minutia of every little bit because it's the director's cut. And um, there's more stuff in there, and I want to get into all the stuff. And I tried getting into all the stuff, and it took me 45 minutes to get like a eighth of the way through the film. Um, but the film I'm going to be talking about today is Kingdom of Heaven. Um, 2005 film starring Orlando Bloom uh, as Balian of Iblin, the defender of Jerusalem, uh, just after or just at the beginning of the Third Crusade. Um, end of the second, beginning of the third, I guess, is the period that this movie takes place in. Um, I want to examine mostly the fights. Um, as a stage combatant and amateur military historian, I kind of want to take both a look at what's happening with the characters and what's happening with the weapons and the tactics and the history going on. Um, so, yeah, uh, I'm going to just dive right into the film, uh, if at all possible. Um, but first, I'm going to talk about... I missed this bit, actually. I'm looking at my notes now. I'm um, going to talk about a couple of the uh, inspirations for doing this podcast. A couple of the reasons... Uh, that I'm inspired to do this topic, I guess. Uh, the main one, I guess, would have to be Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. Um, hardcore History is... It is one of the best podcasts out there. And podcasts is almost not even the right term. They're kind of like audiobooks. The most recent series he's been doing, the um, 
blueprint for Armageddon series detailing the history of the First World War, uh, the latest episode is about four and a half hours. So a tremendous amount of work goes into this, a tremendous amount of passion on Dan's part, I can tell, because this guy paints a very human and very vivid picture of the past in a way that very few people can. Um, cannot recommend it highly enough. Uh, if you want to start somewhere, uh, start on his first episode uh, called Blueprint for Armageddon Part 1. Um, he dives right into the, I guess, the determining factors for why Archduke Franz Ferdinand being shot in Sarajevo, Sarajevo sorry, like he was um, on that particular day, in that particular point in history, um, led to one of the most violent outpourings of violence that the human race has ever seen. And um, we forget a lot about it because the Second World War overshadows it by so much in both scale and some other things, but World War One is essential to understanding how the 20th century developed like it did. Cannot stress it highly enough. Um, Stuff You Missed in History Class is another great one. 30-minute segments, very easily digestible. Um, snippets of history, um, very well researched, and they always manage to do kind of what I want to do on this podcast, which is to try to find some of the more le- the the lesser known, but very well deserving topics of history that should be talked about. Um, on this podcast, I might delve into some weird weapons, and believe me, there have been a lot of weird weapons that we human beings have used against each other. Um, so that can be an entire episode in and of itself, or series of episodes. Um, Sometimes I'm going to be talking about, for instance, uh, where the truth lies in the berserker, the Viking warrior famed for their rage on the battlefield and their animalistic um, battle strategy or lack thereof or something like that, where it actually came from. And I think that can be a very juicy topic in and of itself. Um, I'm looking at my notes here. Uh Berserkers, weird weapons, uh, the Hashashin, Lensknecht, the psychology of combat. You can kind of get where I'm going, I suppose, with this. But I'm running a little bit long, so let me get right into it like I was going to. So Kingdom of Heaven. This movie begins showing Europe as probably one of the most bleakest, desolate places in the history of the world. It's somehow always snowing. Even if it looks like it's just a mottled gray version of spring, it look it it's always snowing. It's always something's flying through the air. If it's not snow, it's soot. Um, and even when the sun shines, it's dreary as fuck. Um, you have Orlando Bloom, kind of miscast in my personal opinion, but that's all I'm going to say about it. This film, just saying that maybe Christian Bale could have done a better job in his shoes. That's all. Anyway, um, Bailey and Avibalin, uh he's. Not Bailey and Avibalin yet, I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, just Bailey and the Blacksmith in an unnamed French town, which was actually filmed at the um, castle... Do not have it on my notes. Uh, it's a castle in northern Spain that they actually filmed it at. They had to rebuild some parts of the castle, and they apparently created a lot of jobs while they did, so good on you, movie industry. Anyway, so Bailey has a visit from Liam Neeson... <laughs> I, I, I almost said Brian Mills. I almost said uh, Qui-Gon Jinn. Uh, I almost said a lot of things because Liam Neeson is yet again a warrior mentor character. Uh, tells Balian that, uh, hey, I'm your dad. Um, Want to come with me to the Holy Land? It's a new place. 
that you can find forgiveness at, uh, especially for your wife who committed suicide and was beheaded at the crossroads by his brother, who was a really, really dickish priest. Anyways, a a theme you're going to find throughout this film is that people are just wanton dicks for no justifiable reason. And that's probably by design, but it's a bit by heavy-handed design, I think. Um, All the main antagonists in this film are just grouchy assholes. And they don't seem to have a lot of depth beyond that. Just saying. Um, Offers to whisk him away to the Holy Land. He, of course, refuses. uh, Gets him taunting by his uh, incredibly dickish brother, played wonderfully by Michael Sheen. Uh, Runs him through with a hot sword. um, Runs off in pursuit of his father, uh, Godfrey. Now, um, Godfrey takes him in. Uh, when he wakes up, uh, throws a sword at him and tells me, tells him, see, let, let's let's see what you have. Now, uh, an important distinction to make is that in the director's cut of this film, uh, it explains that Balian has actually had experience on the battlefield, and uh, he's asked, "Have you been to war?" And he says, uh, "Yes, on in on horse and as an engineer also," which means that he knows siege engines, which justifies a lot of the things later on in the film. Um, you can digest the story, basically, in the theatrical version, but the director's cut kind of fleshes out the world a little bit better, even if it is almost three and a half hours long. But getting right back to it. So there's a big training scene with Liam Neeson teaching uh, Orlando Bloom, um, or kind of verifying where he's at skill level-wise, which makes complete sense if you're tra- traveling with an armed compatriots to towards the Holy Land. It makes perfect sense to do that, to see if he actually knows what he's doing with the sword. Turns out he does. Um, not as much as Liam Neeson, though, because he shows him a couple of things that um, we in the stage combat community would recognize immediately. Uh, one of them is half-sorting. Uh, during the training portion, Liam Neeson's character uh, overcomes a bind from Lando Bloom with coming out with the hilt of his sword, pointing the could be very sharp, Quion's, the side guards, at um, Orlando Bloom's head, saying that the blade isn't the only part of the sword. It's an important thing to remember that it wasn't simply just a big meat cleaver type of chopping weapon. There was there actually was some finesse towards using the longsword, and um, this film shows it to a certain degree. Uh, teaches him such a thing as never taking a low guard, uh, advocates a high-guarded posture where you can cut downwards using gravity. He calls it La Posta de Falcone. I can't find the exact manual that appears in, but I know that there were Italian longsword manuals published at the time. haven't read any of them myself. Um, so anybody who's listening to this who knows what manual that's from, please, by all means, comment, because I could really use that. Anyway, teaches him a couple of new tricks, which he then uses because the camp that they're staying at is attacked. Now, uh, these are the forces of the town whose priest Balian just murdered with a hot sword. Um, It also turns out that the lord of that town is Godfrey's brother, also expanded upon in the director's cut. Uh, And the man coming to arrest Balian is Godfrey's nephew. Now, Godfrey's nephew is, as you might... Uh, recognized from Game of Thrones, Nicholas Coster Wal- Nikolai Coster Walshow, Waldo, 
I'll have to check the pronunciation on that, but um, <laughs> Jamie Lannister from Lord... I almost said Lord of the Rings. Jamie Lannister from Game of Thrones. Jesus, I'm getting my I'm getting my fantasy mixed up. Anyway, um so Jamie Lannister rides up and demands that Balian sur- uh surrender to them. Uh Godfrey says no, of course. Gives him a very Liam Neeson answer. Says Balian's a murderer, says so am I. Anyway, fight begins with a hail of arrows. Um it's it's also important to note at this point that while all of the soldiers attacking them are uniform, faceless, as you might expect movie goons to be, um, Godfrey's company is something of a United Nations of Crusader companies. Um, these people are of all nationalities. There's a German named Heinrich, if I recall correctly, a black Saracen whose name is Firuz, uh, although you never really hear that because he doesn't have a whole lot of dialogue, unfortunately. None in English, at least. Um, I have a trouble placing them. I think that he's possibly Sudanese or um, more likely Ethiopian. Um, I never got a chance to see exactly. He he didn't show any shots of him praying, so I couldn't tell whether he was a Muslim Saracen warrior who was somehow flipped and working for Godfrey or whether he was an Ethiopian Christian, perhaps. Ethiopia has a very, very long history with that religion and... um, some of their soldiers may have seen the seen action in the Crusades. But uh, he, you have the German Heinrich, you have the Black Saracen Feroes, you have Kevin McKidd, uh, who I might also slip up and refer to as Lucius Varinus um, in this podcast because of my great fandom status of his character in Rome. Uh, also a great series. I would highly recommend it. I might do a p- podcast on that series myself. Um, <laughs> and Ramus Lupin. Uh, Ramus Lupin, uh, which is the only thing that I can, the only name of his that I can remember, so you're just going to have to look up, I'll try to list the whole cast or the link to the IMDB page, because David Thewlis, I think think it is, David Thewlis, but Ramus Lupin, that's all I remember him as, um, as a knight hospitaller, as you can tell by the black uniform with the white cross, to some fancy trick writing in this battle that's about to happen, um... And then, of course, you have Balian and then Liam Neeson. Now, this battle starts off with a hail of crossbow bolts from all sides. Takes the German fellow Heinrich out immediately. Um, A couple of guys get arrows through the face and chest, respectively. Um, Arrows and bolts. It was hard to tell sometimes, but uh, the CGI people did a very good job of having believable arrow flight in this movie. I, I think that... I've never really noticed that in a film before. Believable arrow flight. But, anyway. We have a couple of really great combinations used by some of the characters. And I noticed that oh, an easy way to tell in a film if somebody is a master swordsman or very, very skilled is that they use two weapons. Because, and, and there's some truth to that because they do take a little bit of skill and finesse to control and keep a track of. Now you have two things you have to worry about where they are as opposed to one. It makes sense. Anyway. You have Heinrich using what looks to be a Viking-style sword, even though he's German. They show him with long locks of braided blonde hair, so you, you can tell he's you can tell he's German. And he wields something that looks like a spather. And now a spather is 
you everybody knows the Roman gladius, the the simple straight thrusting sword that was used by the gladiators where they got their name and Roman legionaries. Now, imagine a, a gladius but a, about a foot longer and you'll have a spatha. Now the spatha were developed from the gladius to be able to u- be used on horseback by Roman cavalier. Um I don't know if they were called cavaliers at the time, but cavalry officers so that they could hack down at infantry from their horse. Makes sense. You see this pattern replicated a lot in the swords that you find with the Vikings. Now, the hilt looks kind of like it could be either Viking or Romanesque. So, for a film that usually does such a good job on historical, not necessarily accuracy, but consistency, if they make an error, at least they're consistent about it, um, it seems a moment of gross anachronism, strangely enough. And uh, it, it, it stood out to me. If it is indeed a Roman-style hilt. I can't tell. See, I told you I was going to get into the minutiae of some things, so I'm going to try and stay on track as best I can for you guys. Now, everything wraps up after a lot of bloodshed, but not after Kevin McKidd also uses a wonderful double-hand combination of a Warhammer and a falchion. If you see this when I say a warhammer, most people would think of like a giant two-handed mallet, like a sledgehammer or a maul or something like that. It, there's no reason somebody would have one of those on a battlefield, I don't think. I, I don't think you see a lot of recorded use of those things, unless they're like an axe. But a warhammer is more of, think of a mounted knight in full plate armor, kind of like a lobster. <laughs> I mean, because he's got an exoskeleton, so you need something an impact weapon to crack or dent that armor in such a way that is less effective for him. So the Warhammer was developed as a heavy hammer on a very thick, um, very thick handle that had both a small but very, very dense and sometimes pointed hammerhead. And on the opposite side, something like a very sharp pick. Now, it's not hard to see how this weapon developed for the specific use of cracking down armor, but <laughs> the, the pick can probably drive straight through a breastplate. I mean, at a full two-handed swing, definitely, um, especially with the kind of armor that they had at the time. I feel kind of confident calling that one. Um, of course, you're likely to get your pick lodged in your opponent, it's a risk some people take. More likely that they probably use the hammer to dent the breastplate in, make it hard to breathe, or maybe go for the joints like the knees, the elbows, um, the back of the armor, go straight for the helmet, give them a good couple ones on the head, get that helmet warped around their head, get them confused, delirious, and then end it. Anyway, Kevin McKidd uses one of those. And with one of those, in his right hand, he has a falchion. Now, this is going to be an interesting weapon that a lot of people don't... The falchion is one of the medieval weapons of Europe that is much... In, in ways, it's sexier to use for films than the sword, but looks out of place in Europe because it's a curved kind of like a giant... Think of like a kind of like a giant bowie knife. It's not dissimilar to the German Lange Messer, but it, sometimes they're a lot more curved. They look like short-ish scimitars, but with sometimes European-style cruciform hilts. The falchion is a weapon that 
if many people saw it, would say that it came from the Middle East or India or some other country that uses bladed weapons that curve like that. But believe it or not, it was a fairly decently common weapon for as an arming sword for soldiers in the field. Say you had a spear or a halberd or something as your main weapon. You probably had a decently long but single-handed sword at your side. This was known as an arming sword. It's very likely that that, that happened. But Lee, I almost said Liam Neeson. Kevin McKidd's character uses this in his right hand. Now, he... In this particular instance, he's choreographed in such a way that it, it, it's very kung fu and such. Maybe it's just the position he ends in, but he very quickly follows up blows, um, using the pick in one instance to bind uh, somebody around and then get them with the falchion. But he ends in a very kind of... Uh, I'm having a hard time describing this, picking opera hero kind of pose, if that makes any sense. Maybe that's just, again, a thing to try to show that these people are very highly skilled. More warriors than soldiers, because they have a lot more individuality to them than the adversaries, obviously, who are all uniform. This is, you know, simple Hollywood storytelling. But anyway, um, battle comes to an end. Uh, Our friend Farouz down. Heinrich down. Shot through the throat with an arrow at the very beginning of the sh- of the uh, showdown. Unfortunately did not make it. Managed to take out quite a few guys with the arrow in his throat though. So to his credit. Um, and a few others. Uh, their sentry and uh, I think another unnamed fellow. But uh, after this all wraps up um, before Liam Neeson and Ramus Lupin stand one of the enemy soldiers, the last surviving soldier, I believe, um, after Balian drove his sword through the back of Jamie Lannister's head, breaking off the arrow in his side at the process. This will be important later. Um, <laughs> Jamie Lannister gets a sword in the back of the head. I Sorry, I just froze on that thought. But they take this last prisoner. They take this uh, guy who... <laughs> Very highfalutin sound, has a very nice Frankish mustache, and he's um, and he's saying, and this is only in the director's cut, by the way, so this is another reason why you should see that film before listening to this podcast. Um, but you have this prisoner who is sitting before Liam Neeson, begging for mercy, basically, uh, saying that he is the son of Roger de Cormier, and he is afforded the uh, privilege of ransom, to which you just get looks from Liam Neeson and Ramus Lupin like, okay, so. And eventually he says, well, this is true. And as if on cue, Kevin McKidd sneaks behind him, pulls out his war hammer, flips around to the pick side, measures up his shot, and drives it into the back of this man's head, who thinks that he's about to get clemency. To be fair... Not having him see it coming is kind of merciful, but it go it went to show, I guess, an attempt at saying that these people are morally ambiguous in such a way that, you know, they're not completely good. They're still kind of doing... <sighs> I don't want to say unjustifiable, but unjustified things, things that aren't even discussed. I mean, the prisoner being executed via Warhammer to the back of the head at which point the soundtrack kicks up and the angelic choir starts going, 
That's kind of jarring all, all on its own. But the ethics of executing this prisoner are never brought up. Again, throughout the film, Balian never questions this. It could have been a good scene, but um, strangely never commented upon after that. But moving right along to the next fight. Now, in the interim, Balian gets on a ship, goes to the Holy Land, ship goes down, wakes up on the beach. Um, and, of course, this is after Liam Neeson has died, transferring his wealth and um, what little there is of it, um, his title uh, as Baron of Ibelin, and his sweet-ass sword is very is a very beautiful blade. I have to say, there's a ruby-shaped cross, uh, I'm sorry, cross-shaped ruby in the hilt, which light shines through, and it's just it's a very gorgeous sword, and that's how you can tell it's the hero's sword. So, Balian washes up on the beach conveniently with a horse, this sword, his belt, everything but, you know, basic survival supplies, and runs into, at this oasis, a two-man team of Saracens, uh, a lord and his servant who translates for him. Now, they get into a fight because Balian refuses to give up the horse, basically. He needs the horse to traverse the desert. Makes sense. But they need an excuse to fight, so there they go. Now, this cavalier at first charges at him on horse with a long, all-steel spear. It's a very interesting piece because you don't see any other weapon like it throughout the film. But it's clearly a personal weapon because it's only about six foot tall, whereas all the other Persian and Saracen lances are about seven to eight feet tall. You have this lance thrown, Balian deflects it, they get into sword-on-sword combat with his longsword versus a two-handed scimitar. Now, the scimitar is an interesting weapon all on its own because you never see another like it throughout the film, just like the spear. It's a two-handed deal that looks to be just about as heavy as Balian's longsword, and, but characterized by this gently curving and flared-out um, scimitar shape. Uh, it could be again that this is this is the it, everything speaks to the this equipment, this weapon system this guy's employing to be the property of a wealthy, wealthy guy to commission his own armor, his own servant, his own weapons of that like. It clearly shows that this is a man of standing who Balian has been trying to get away from back in Europe. Themes, parallels. Um, the sword-on-sword combat is very interesting because it looks like they're using the same weapon. And I don't mean visually, I mean in the style of choreography, they're given all the same moves, really. You don't see any of the, I guess, fast sweeping cuts. Um, maybe sweeping's not the right word. Um, trying to think of the stage combat term that we use for this. Uh, skating cuts. It's where you kind of lash out at first all... An extension, and then sharply kind of bring it back as you make contact. Um, it's kind of a way to feign a cut so you can line up for thrust or some other kind of move with the sword. I didn't see a lot of that in the fight. I saw them using very, like, clang, 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 cut here, cut here, cut at the top, bind down. Um, kind of unremarkable longsword combat. And I expected more, kind of. Um... Eventually, uh, Balian disarms this man, and he picks up his spear again, this six-foot-long 
very finely detailed. I would have liked to get a close-up shot of it. Spear. But he also uses the spear kind of badly. He uses it in very long, sweeping cuts, trying to get at Balian's throat, his um, his his stomach, his his legs, those kind of things. But he's making sweeping cuts as if he's using a glaive or something, or or a halberd, but not a spear. He's not using quick thrusts like you would expect. Like it almost looks like a wushu weapon that you would use for, you know, thrusting here about five times and here about five times, and then coming over and trying to hit with a shaft and all these kind of things, spear versus sword, a spear has a very natural advantage if he can keep the swordsman at distance. I didn't see any attempts to do that. Um, and as a result, he gets his throat sliced out in a dramatic slashing, slashing, in a dramatic fashion with a slash by Bailey. And I've just, I think I've just coined a new and terrible term. Through this, Bailey gets the guy's servant, goes to Jerusalem, uh, things happen in such a way I have to skip to the next fight here but I'm skipping a tremendous portion of the film in which uh, Baldwin V dies there's almost a confrontation at Karak um, there's a small confrontation involving Balian and he gets taken prisoner by the very guy he saved earlier which happened to be the cavalier and not the servant but um, showed mercy on him basically um, just like he did with him uh, you have the fall of Baldwin the Fifth, uh, Baldwin the Fourth. I'm sorry, the leper king of Jerusalem, as played in a brilliant fashion by Edward Norton. Um, this guy was considered for the main villain of the film, but when he heard about this role, he demanded that he play it, and he went uncredited at first because he went behind a mask. Uh, but very brilliant acting, acting behind a mask. There's it's almost a separate art. I studied some of this in Cornish College back in Seattle. Um, and mask work is a nut that I only barely began to crack. There's just there's a whole world of possibilities that you can do in portraying things with a very, I don't know, a kind of subtlety, but I could get into that later on. Um, masks in combat is also a very interesting concept that I might explore later. But Baldwin dies of his leprosy after a very strenuous travel I guess uh, there's in the director's cut there's a subplot with the accession by Sibylla uh, played by Ava Green uh, Baldwin's sister her son um, is next in line for the throne there's a whole plot there where he dies and I don't want to reveal too many details but um, he's poisoned and he dies and Guy de Lusignan, the lead asshole of this film, uh, is now king of Jerusalem, makes war on Saladin against Balian's orders, uh, or Balian's advice. But before he does that, there's uh, another fight. Now, this fight is... To set it up, Balian is back at his estate in Evelyn, which he has turned into a flourishing paradise, of course because nobody could irrigate, I guess, before he got there. And he's set upon by three Knights Templar in different, I guess, uh, regalia. So the Balian, I guess, wouldn't know that they were Templars, but if they were hoping to kill him, why would it matter? Doesn't matter. Anyway, um, one of them on horse, two of them on foot, with sword and shield. The one on the horse has a triple-headed flail, another weapon I found very interesting. And uh, the other, I believe, has... 
a sword. Yeah, I think he just has a sword. Um, <laughs> and it's very interesting to note as well that you don't see any full plate armor in this film uh, because full plate armor hadn't come into use in Europe at that time yet. And I think it was about another century till that happened. Uh, but you see a lot of mail and this great big helmet, the Great Helm. A lot of soldiers wore these throughout the Crusades. Uh, pretty much, hey, let's put our heads inside a big metal bucket that nothing can smash, and uh, we can see a little bit better through. But, hey, we're very top-heavy, and our vision's limited. Bit of a trade-off. Um, and apparently they're not rock-proof, because Balian takes a rock, smashes it against his head, his sword's out of reach on his horse, so he grabs a rock and just smashes this guy's helmet in, and takes the next one takes his sword after trimming him up and smashing his throat the at all all the while and it's a very it's a very well put together fight in that they don't crowd the screen too much there's three assailants the one on the horse with the triple flail is just riding by and smacking him a couple of times as he goes by or trying to smack him which is exactly what you would do you would just try to take passes at him harry him a little bit while your two buddies moved in and killed him perfect plot if you're trying to be assassinate a person not that I'm advocating assassinating a person in such a fashion it's important um, so the thing that Balian does with the flail is interesting because he gets the rider off his horse and the gentleman with the flail uh, <laughs> after being provoked by a great line by Balian he says is this why you came to the holy land come on uh, at this point He's incensed, so why not? But uh, attacks him with the flail. Now, how you usually see chain weapons used against swords in films is that they wrap around the blade and you pull the sword right out of their hand. That's usually how it works. In this when I'm sorry, in this film, it works the opposite. Balian goes into half sword, grabs a part of the blade, takes the that the handle, I guess, of the wrapped-around three-headed flail, when it's wrapped around, grabs it out of his hand and smacks him on the helmet with the handle and whips it around his head and does it again. Which, again, seems like a lot of work, but damn, it looks good on camera the way they shot it. I mean, uh, the obvious answer, of course, if you take their flail away, they just slide your slide it off your sword and go to town. Uh, but it was apparently more satisfying to hit the hit the enemy in their head with the handle of their own weapon. It was, again, it made for a great bit of choreography. Now, and this showed the limitations of the armor of the day, by the way. Um, I, uh, the rock could very easily, if you had a big enough stone and hit him enough times on the head, could cave in one of those great helms could bend it onto somebody's head, make it difficult to get off, or bend it so that their what little eye slit cover that they do have is bent in, their visibility is marred, they can't do anything, and then go for gaps in the armor. Just saying. Moving right along. Yeah, moving right along. So you have the attempted assassination with the Templars. Of course, 
Balian survives. He wins. He goes to try and meet Guy de Lusignan, who's about to launch an attack on Salahedin from Jerusalem, which he says is suicide because you're going away from water. Why would you do that? You have a water supply here. Defend the city. He's going to move against it anyway. Use your use your troops to hold the city. But no, because Guy de Lusignan's a, not only an asshole, but a dim-witted one, decides, no, I'm going to march out into the desert with a few tens of thousands of men. And I'm going to take on Salahadin. And as a side note as well, and there's going to be a lot more of those, Salahadin as a character in this film is... I don't want to say he's portrayed the most sympathetic out of all the Saracens, but but he kind of is. I mean, other than the guy who saves Balian, who, you know, Balian fought earlier in the film, Salahadin is the most moderate character in a position of power in this film. Very, very much parallel of Baldwin, because Baldwin, his, the, the hallmark of him was that he believed in peace between Christians and Muslims, and for a time, the country was ruled by very level heads. Salahuddin was one of those level heads. A very smart guy, very shrewd tactician. I could do an entire episode on him, and I may do one later. Uh, this is a guy who, by all accounts, left a... He left an interesting mark on warfare. Let's just put it that. Just put it that way. So... This fails in dramatic fashion. Uh, the Battle of, H- of Hattin, which is considered the turning point battle in this crusade, is is not shown in this film, and that's unfortunate because, again, could be an episode in and of itself, and I may do one, but long story short, Guy de Lusignan, the new king of Jerusalem, his army is destroyed because they've marched through the desert with no water for a couple of weeks before fighting. I don't know how they expected anything else to happen. So, d- defeated in dramatic fashion. I'm sure, but off camera. And now all that's left is Jerusalem, which Balian now defends. Now, there's a couple of really great choreography bits during the siege that follows, but mostly it's a display of, hey, take a look at the special effects department, and hey, take a look at all the siege engines that we actually built for the film working trebuchets, working siege towers, one of which burnt down and almost killed a couple of people, I think, if I remember my IMDb trivia right. There's a couple of great moments. Um, You can see some really close-in combat on the parapets of Jerusalem. You see Balian rocking a warhammer for just a few moments, trying to get some people off of... uh, A a couple of Muslim infantrymen have scaled the wall um, with a ladder, and they managed to get a couple of standards up on the wall, you know, and uh, he says, oh shit, that's a morale victory, gotta cut him down. So he takes the warhammer and does it. Um, in one, at one point, I believe, exploding a guy's knee with one. So, again, a very simple, brutish-looking weapon, but in the right hands can be devastating. Now, Throughout the rest of this siege, you have the combat degenerating from showing, at least showing the moves, at least showing two or more people, two, maybe three people in a frame engaging in combat, um, usually sword to sword. You have um, usually a knight with uh, a little arming sword 
and I, well, I don't want to say little, medium-sized arming sword and a shield versus a Muslim of roughly the same. Again, going with the theme of showing that these people are not so different after all. They, their infantry fights with very, very similar weapons. Basic curved sword and shield for the Saracens, some lancers, some people with axes, but mostly sword and shield. Uh, and of course, these push against each other once the walls breached. And then the city falls. And uh, the entire point was that Balian needed this needed the city to wait a few days or make it at least as costly enough for Salahadin to convince him to take terms of surrender, which he did, um, allowing the people of Jerusalem safe, safe access to Christian lands. So, escaped to slaughter, but had to fight a battle all the same. Um, so, after this, you don't have any fights in the film if you watch the theatrical version. If you have watched the director's cut, you have a bonus duel! But you can see why it's a bonus duel in a second, because it's between Guy de Lusignan and Balian. And after, because because when Salah Hadin's army showed up at the gates of Jerusalem, the first thing they did was parade Guy in the manner of Jesus on a donkey across their army, at which they all laughed as just a massive insult to any of the Christians living in Jerusalem, in a point to maybe make them mad so they screwed up. You have him paraded as Jesus in front of their army. And then after the city falls, he confronts Balian, hands him a sword, basically just, you know, demanding to fight him. It It's very out of nowhere. Um, in the script, I can see why they cut it out of the out of the theatrical release because you really don't need that. The rest you see of Guy in that film, in the theatrical release, is him being paraded on the back of a donkey in the manner of Jesus. That's all you see of him. You assume he's either taken prisoner or killed after that. Um, but in the, in the director's cut, it turns out he lives and he confronts Balian. Now, this fight had the potential to be very interesting but I think it was wasted in the manner with which it was shot because it's very inconsistent. It starts off, Guy has a sword, face, hands Balian his sword, they face off broadsword to broadsword, Guy grabs a second broadsword, so it's two on one, goes a few rounds like that, then all of a sudden he only has one sword again, and then in another frame he has a sword and a dagger, it never shows him dropping the one sword, and it never shows him taking the dagger. So I don't know if it was just hastily put together, hastily edited, hastily shot, or whether that... I don't know if they were ever planning on using it in the film. But it's it's some very good choreography. No music. Um, they, they do a very good job in syncopating the rhythm. And syncopating the rhythm of your strikes is one of the things that you can do in a sword fight in in choreographing a sword fight to make it feel more organic, a little bit more rooted in realism because people don't fight to a straight doom, 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 rhythm. It's very, it's syncopated. It's arrhythmic. It is chaotic. And if you bring more of those elements into the strike pattern, I guess is a term that I could use, but into the rhythm of your fight, I think it, ratchets up the tension. And it manages to ratchet up a little bit of tension in this film, in this particular fight, but ultimately it's kind of wasted. Um, 
not much more to say about this fight. Wanted more, uh, but ultimately neither character gains anything huge. And there, Balian, of course, doesn't kill him at the very end because he's been merciful this entire film. Even though leaving him alive is, on paper, a terrible, terrible mistake. Uh, doesn't do anything. Nothing is accomplished. Nothing is gained. Nothing is lost, really. So... It's it's a bonus, nice bit of choreography here, um, but it's very low stakes, and unfortunately, that's what most fights that you can classify as bad fights on film or stage suffer from. If the stakes are low, if you don't know what people are fighting for, there's no cohesive story being told. And at least that's how I f- how I see it. I want to at least be invested in the story, I guess. And you need tension, you need stakes, you need danger to do that. Um, in this film overall very very solid combat um, I'm really glad I chose this for the first episode here uh, I'm sorry if I rambled a bit uh, I also accidentally spilled a drink on myself during recording here so uh, I got a little bit of mess in the booth I apologize I'm going to talk a little bit more uh, about why I'm doing this um I'm kind of doing this to. Sorry, I went off the rails there. I'm going to have to cut that out. In summary, Kingdom of Heaven, great film, great fights. Highly recommend it, especially the director's cut, if you can get your hands on it. Um, next episode, uh, I haven't decided on yet. Uh, we're going to see how this one goes, see how I edit it. Um, shit, I'm going to cut that out, too. Editing is going to be fun. Anyway. Uh, in summary, Kingdom of Heaven, solid film. Cannot recommend it highly enough, especially the director's cut. Uh, very lavish historical pit. Um Again. In summary, Kingdom of Heaven, solid film. Highly recommend it, especially director's cut. Uh, the costumes, the set, everything really comes together in a big way. Uh, bonus bit on the director's. Shit. In summary, in summary, Kingdom of Heaven, great film. Cannot recommend it highly enough, especially the director's cut. Be, be prepared. It's about three hours long. But, bonus point, you do get a fancy old-style prelude, intermission, and epilogue. You do get those, and the soundtrack is amazing as well. You get some great choral choral bits through that. I, I know that many of my friends at Renaissance Festival probably have this movie on their shelf, <laughs> would not be the least bit surprised. Um, that's it for the first episode of Fightcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I'm going to think about the next episode. Uh, next, uh, shit. Anyway, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a great first episode. Uh, sorry if I rambled a bit. There's going to be some editing. Try and take a little bit of that out. But in any case, uh, subsequent episodes I'm going to have Amanda Celeste Jagger on. 
I'm going to have a few of my friends on to talk about certain... I'm going to go for some lesser-known historical topics, but rest assured, I'll let you know which... Anyway, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a really great first episode. Uh, Again, new endeavor for me. This is going to get smoother as they go on, and I find more interesting things to talk about. Next episode is a mystery. You'll have to find out after I post it. So, uh, This has been Fightcast. Thank you so, so much again. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Now go forth and conquer. Go above and beyond and follow us at Fightcast Podcast and check out our blog and new episodes at fightcastpodcast.com.